This morning, as we begin to look at the Alabas Discourse again, let me just remind you, I think most of you are aware, that when we come to Scripture, there are several hermeneutical principles or principles that we use to apply and to understand Scripture. And there's a distinction that you want to make as you study and read Scripture. What you want to do is you want to begin looking at Scripture from the perspective of the readers, the original readers, in other words, what did the original author attempt to communicate to those original readers? That's fundamental. That's basic hermeneutics. Look at every passage from that perspective. In other words, if you're reading a letter that Paul wrote What was Paul attempting to communicate? And to that particular audience, what were they, what was he trying to communicate so that they might understand certain things? If you're looking at the Pentateuch, what was Moses attempting to communicate to the children of Israel wherever they were at? Maybe Egypt or maybe in the wilderness or wherever. Once you understand what that initial communication is all about, you have the essence of understanding what that passage is all about. From that, then, secondly, then you're in a position to be able to say, okay, how does that apply to my situation thousands of years later, 21st century, your situation? Every single passage in Scripture you can bring into the 21st century and you can apply it. That includes things like genealogies. You say, well, how do you apply a genealogy? Well, you've got to be a little bit more creative. And that also applies to things like what we've been looking at in terms of eschatology. In other words, you say, well, that doesn't pertain to my generation, those things. It's talking about the great tribulation, etc. Well, yes, it's directed at a particular audience at a particular time, And it has its primary application to that particular generation. Now, we're going to talk about that generation and make some distinctions today. But we can look at the same passage that was written to a different person or different audience. In fact, when we read Scripture, we're reading somebody else's mail, particularly the letters of the New Testament. They're not addressed to us. They're addressed to someone else, but because they are inspired, in other words, God breathed these in order that we may have access to the revelation that he made to those particular audiences. Because of inspiration, they have a broader application to you and I, or to anyone at any particular time in history. Make sense? And there are some passages, like the ones that we're going to look at today, that we started last week, that are even more applicational than others. For example, we were looking at things relating to the great tribulation that is future from this generation. That is, if you're understanding the text in the way that I've been explaining it, in terms of uh, pre-tribulation rapture. If that's the case, then uh, we don't rip it out of our Bibles. We, we study it to understand what was God trying to communicate or what is he communicating to that generation. But we can draw application. We tried to do that as we were looking at some of those passages. But beginning with the passage we're looking at today, it is particularly applicational. It's intended to be applicational to that 
original audience, so it's a little bit easier to draw applications for us in the 21st century. There are some passages that are more difficult to apply, like a genealogy. Okay, how do I apply that? Well, you got to be creative. There are some passages that are clear-cut and somewhat evident in terms of their application, and that would pertain to some of the passages that we're looking at, and we'll look at through the rest of chapter 24, okay? So we're looking at the Olivet Discourse, and I mentioned last time we're in uh, sitting with the apostles, with Jesus Christ on the Mount of Olives, looking out Temple Mount. They're observing these buildings, and they're admiring them, and in the first century they were greatly to be admired, and they were looking at certain things like the wall here and some of those stones. The apostles actually saw the same stones that you can look at today, the lower ones that would be called Herodian stones. Now, because the walls were destroyed, and over time the walls have been rebuilt, so a lot of the stones are not the same ones that were there, but the foundational stones are certainly there. So I showed you some of these slides, and these I took on the recent trip. And uh, looking back from that same location is the, the Mount of Olives and the disciples were somewhere on that. We don't know exactly where. There's a couple of places that are proposed. In fact, there's a Garden of Gethsemane that is suggested as a possible place near where the Olivet Discourse was presented to the disciples. So we show these things to help us better kind of put ourselves in the same place as the original hearers, in this case, original audience, so that we can be in a better position to be able to apply to us today. And I also mentioned that the Olivet Discourse deals with kind of a dual purpose. It deals with the situation of the first century and the apostles themselves, but it goes beyond them to a generation beyond the first century. And in the first century, Jesus predicts the destruction of these buildings that they're admiring. And there's actually archaeological evidence of that destruction. And you can see that. In fact, I took this photograph a couple of weeks ago. These stones that were tossed from Temple Mount onto the first century street. And the first century street is damaged, as is evidence there, as archaeologists have uh, uncovered and leave it so that you can observe what happened as a result of 70 A.D. Some of these stones are like two, two tons, so drop from 30 feet above or so down to the street. You can expect that kind of damage that you see in the slides. So that's the first century setting, if you will, of the Olivet Discourse, dealing with not only 70 A.D., but even more so to a period of time that's going to be like 70 A.D. In other words, it's going to be a severe and difficult period of time. So we looked at the setting, and that period of time is called tribulation. This is a unique period of time in all of world history. Jesus says there's never been a time like it before, and there never will be a time like it afterwards. There's passages in the Old Testament that give you the same idea. Very unique. Because of its uniqueness, and because of its purpose, and because of a lot of passages, I believe the church is removed before the spirit of time. 
But even though the church is not a part of that period of time, we can still draw application from those passages and the ones that follow as well. There's a twofold purpose for the tribulations. Anybody remember two major purposes for the tribulation? There's secondary purposes uh, as well. Yeah. Okay, judgment, or to, as Linda's putting it, clean up the world, cleanse it, judge it, separate evil out of it. That's part of the purpose. And actually, I think that's a secondary purpose, but it's a major purpose. What is the major purpose of the whole tribulation? Israel. Exactly. Do everybody get that? This is the time when God is going to bring Israel into a saving relationship with himself. He's going to use the judgments. He's going to use the conditions of the world in order to convince Jewish people, Israelites, and the nation of Israel as a whole that Jesus is the only salvation, particularly in a period of time when physical existence is even at risk. But they are going to recognize that Jesus is, in fact, Messiah. He was Messiah in the first century, and he's going to return at the end of this period of time, and that's given to us in verses 29 through 31. And this seven-year period, during that time, the nation of Israel is going to have a spiritual awakening. That's the major purpose of that period of time, the seven-year tribulation. That's really the only positive thing that takes place, is the massive conversion of not only Jewish people, but that's going to stimulate a worldwide revival like the world has never seen. Greater than anything, greater than the Great Awakening, greater than anything Billy Graham has ever done, or any evangelist in all of history, that revival is yet future. And it takes place during that period of time, the seven-year tribulation. Christ ends it with his coming, and he also begins to establish a kingdom. The Olivet Discourse will deal with that in chapter 25. But before we get there, Jesus has a section from verses 32 to 51 where he gives these applications. These applications are to that original audience. First of all, the disciples or the apostles. Secondly, I think there's a very definite application to a particular generation in the future that will see the unfolding of these events. Does that make sense? And it has, because it's inspired, it has an application to you and I in the 21st century as well. It may be slightly different for us than it was for the apostles and even for those during that are alive around the period of the tribulation period. So this portion, 32 through 51 is more applicational. So it will be it'll be easier for us to find application in these passages. Okay? Makes sense? So that's our little introduction. Last time I mentioned that he's gonna do this by unfolding a series of six illustrations, mainly parables, but remember the major characteristic of a parable is it's an illustration. So we could kind of categorize these parables and or illustrations and group them as six 
particular illustrations. We started last time by looking at the parable of the fig tree, and we'll continue looking at it. We only got to verse 33, but that runs, I think, through verse 36. Then we have not so much a parable, but more of an illustration of Noah's day. That's verses 37 through 39. And we'll look at that next, probably not today. Then there's another illustration that is very confusing to a lot of people in the church age. If you keep everything in context, and particularly if you view the original audience, you'll see that those verses, 40 through 42, does not pertain to the church. And if it's not pertaining to the church, then it does not deal with the rapture. And some people think that this is a picture of the rapture. Well, I'm going to tell you that I think you're taking the passage out of its context, not only textually, in the context textually, but also historically and in terms of uh, audience and original audience. So it's an illustration of judgment, not rapture. And I stress that aspect. We'll look at that, 40-40. Then there's a parable that is not in Matthew, so we'll take a break from Matthew and look at what Mark's... Mark has an account of the Olivet Discourse as well. And Mark includes a parable that is not found in Luke or Matthew. And that's Mark 13, 33-37, a parable of a traveler. So we'll take a little leave from Matthew and look at Mark's account there. And then back to Matthew, Matthew 24, 43-44, we have a parable of a homeowner. See these illustrations and parables? They follow through. And then the sixth one is a parable of servants. That's verses 45 through 51. And with these six illustrations and or parables, Jesus is bringing the teaching or the doctrinal portion, the doctrine of eschatology. Now he's emphasizing application. In other words, how should I respond to the teaching concerning the things relating to eschatology. And we have some clues how we might apply all of eschatology, because there's a lot of eschatology throughout Scripture. In other words, how do I apply the whole book of Revelation, for example? So we'll have some insight from uh, these parables and or illustrations. So, we are looking at the parable of the fig tree. Last week we saw the exposition of it, or... You might even say the explanation of it or description of this parable deals with a fig tree. And one of the things that I tried to stress is sometimes we read too much into passages, and I think that's real common in even conservative circles. And I think there's a, a viewpoint that I think is not intended by the original author. We'll review that in a moment. So, we looked at verse 32, now learn the parable from the fig tree. In other words, he's going to give a lesson, and this lesson is more, it's not so much doctrinal, I stressed last time, but it's more applicational. And in fact, from the biblical perspective, to learn something is not simply to learn it intellectually. In fact, that is not knowing. The, the Greek word ginosko and the corresponding Hebrew word in the Old Testament, the essence of the meaning of knowledge, ginosko, 
is to learn, not just intellectually, but to learn in such a way that it impacts your life. In other words, the whole process. Intellectual that impacts your living or your life. So application is the end product of the intellectual exercise. And he's given them intellectual data concerning future things. And now they continue the learning process by applying the particular principle that he's trying to develop, uh, in this case, the, the parable. So learn the parable from the fig tree. And I think it's a simple parable. When uh, its branches has already become tender and put forth its leaves, any child understands, hey, the trees are budding, you see the, the flowers, you see the leaves, you see the softening of the branches. I think that's what's in view here. When the branches become tender, the sap is flowing, it's not so stiff. What's that supposed to tell you? School is almost out, right? <laughs> Summer is here, or coming. Summer is right around the corner. I get to do whatever I want to, if you're a little kid. Okay, And that's the point. You know that summer is near. So that's the illustration. That's the parable. And then verse 33. So you too, when you see all these things. Last time we said what? These things refer to verses 4 through 28. In other words, the doctrinal things that he's talking about concerning that future time frame. When all these things begin to unfold, you're, you're seeing them come. You see the covenant that is made with Antichrist. You see the abomination that makes desolate. You see the destructions of these judgments. You see the great falling away of people, the denying of Jesus as Messiah, the denying of spiritual things. You begin to see things begin to intensify and become more severe. When all these things begin to take place, recognize that he is near. So this parable pertains to the second coming, does not pertain to the rapture. Is that clear? That's the meaning of the passage. In other words, that's the original intent that the original author, in this case Jesus, had for that particular audience. Is that clear? Now we can apply it. Now when we apply, now we have more flexibility. We can apply it not because we're going to go through that period of time and not because we're going to observe those things, but because there's a principle that is applicable no matter the situation. And this principle could have been applied at any point in any time frame at any time in church history. And certainly it can be applied in the 21st century. Make sense? Well, let's first of all take a look at what the original application pertained to. And the original author recognized that he is near, referring to the second coming, right at the door. In other words, at any moment you can expect it. In fact, if you were clued in to Daniel's prophecy, and a lot of people, this is going to be fuzzy during this period of time, a lot of them are new believers, a lot of them are not acquainted with the Old Testament. They didn't have the leisure to be able to study Bible prophecy. They're thrust in the midst and trying to survive. So all of this is going to be fuzzy to them. It's not going to be crystal clear like it is to you. 
who can sit down and study and outline and look at passages like Daniel and analyze it and realize if they understood Daniel, they would know the even precise time frame. So, these signs are going to clue them, okay, it's, it's right at the door. And I said that it's a, just a simple illustration. And I mentioned there is a common interpretation the fig tree represents Israel. Remember that? I'm not going to go over that again. I think that's reading into the parable things that was not were not intended, and I think things that are out of the context that we have here. It is not a parable that prophesies the coming of Israel on the scene or the reestablishment of the nation of Israel, as is a common interpretation of the passage amongst very conservative Bible teaching Bible teachers. For example, I hate to mention the name because I don't want to impugn him. I think he's got an excellent book that I think awakened the church to eschatology. And there's a lot of valuable stuff in that book. But I think he misses a point in some aspect of eschatology. And we talked a little bit about that earlier. But Hal Lindsey, in his book, see, he uses that interpretation and says, since 1948... The fig tree has started to, to bloom and started to show up here. That means that the rapture is near. Well, I don't think it pertains to the rapture, and I don't think it pertains to Israel. The context goes against that and some of the other things that we mentioned last time. Jim? I'm not sure, but I, I think he would be along the lines that we're talking about. Yeah, Hal Lindsey, I think, I don't want to use the word sensationalizes, but he tries to read things in church age that I think are not intended for church age. Yeah, I'll have to check on Pentecost. Uh, but I think Walvrid, for sure, and others like that would uh, hold to what I'm telling you here. So take it just as a simple illustration. If you do the other, what you're doing is you're making the parable into a prophecy. He has given all of the prophecy, now he's applying. So it's just a simple illustration. The leaves on the tree says summer is near. Very simple. And he tells us what he means in the next passage. These signs, in other words, verses 4 through 28, that means the second coming is near. That's the correspondence here. That's what he's trying to illustrate with this parable. An author by the name of Plummer, this is an old theologian, an old uh, commentator, he says this, this is the essence of what he's communicating here. The certainty of the event. In other words, the certainty of the second coming is in view in this parable. And the uncertainty of the time. In other words, it's a little nebulous, not clear, particularly to those that are in the midst of it. I think that's a good statement. So the certainty of the event and the uncertainty of the time should motivate us to have a particular attitude. So that's the exposition and now he's going to expand or explain, beginning in verse 34 through 36. So let's take a look at those verses. 34, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. What is he talking about? Now remember in chapter 23, he talked about this generation using the identical phrase. Is the this generation that we have in uh, Matthew 23 
the same this generation as what we have here? Well, I think we've seen already that he has somewhat transitioned from the time frame of the apostles, remember I've been making a big point, to something that is yet future. None of the things that he's described took place either in the first century or throughout any period of time in church history. There's still future from even the 21st century. I take it from the context, and there's other things that I'll give you in a moment, this generation does not refer to the generation of the disciples. This is prophetic. This is typical. In fact, uh, there was a question asked last time concerning the way that Jesus frames things. This is the same way that the Old Testament prophet framed things. He will be talking to his immediate audience, like Isaiah and uh, others, Ezekiel, uh, Micah and others, he's addressing his generation, speaking to them, but he's speaking to them directly, but in such a way that what he's describing will not take place in their generation, but looks way ahead into the future. And there's usually clues to that in the context. Jim first and then Bill. Oh, I think one of the clearest things on, on the pronoun questions going through there. Right. It's still ahead of uh, I, I thought of verse 44, uh, where it says, For this reason you be ready to, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. Right. Yeah. In other words, it's it, obviously he didn't come. They were there. When they thought he might. Exactly. That's a little clue there that adds to this idea that we're talking about here. Bill? Isn't an alternate translation for the word generation of people? Yes, and I'm going to talk about that in a moment. Yeah, and that's one way that some take it. Jeremy? And, and this, so this is a prophetic statement in this application of art, right? Is that, what, is that true? He said this is, this is prophetic. Yeah, that, that's prophetic, but it's it's just adding to what he's talking about. It's not anything new. In other words, he's not talking about anything new. He's just kind of re- reinforcing what he's already said by repeating some aspect of it. Yeah, very good. I say to you, this generation will not pass away. Let's take a look at that little phrase. And it is a particular Greek word that occurs somewhat frequently in the New Testament. And these are different ways that people have taken that little phrase. This generation. Genea, I think, is the Greek word there. You're nodding yes. Okay, he's got it in his uh, his uh, little uh, iPad there. Well, the liberals camp on this and say, well, Jesus was just wrong. He missed it. And the liberals are saying, basically, well, Jesus is talking about the first century and he didn't return. He missed it. He made a mistake. Well, obviously, there's too many passages that speak of the perfection of Christ, the sinlessness of Christ, to hold to that viewpoint. So we discard that without too much more comment. Very common. In fact, we've been stressing a rising interpretation of many biblical prophetic passages is a fulfillment in the first century, and that viewpoint, what do we call that viewpoint? Preterist. Preterist. The preterist interpretation, they would say, this generation, in fact, this is a big passage that they use to support their viewpoint. 
And they'll make the point that it's the identical word or phrase that we have in verse in chapter 24 as what we have in chapter 23. And we would say, yes, it's an identical phrase. And yes, we would say in chapter 23, he's talking to the generation that he is speaking to. And the Jews of that generation, he's warning them of 70 A.D. In fact, I think he makes that somewhat clear. And they would say, okay, same word, same phrase, same context, same meaning. All right? We say, well, it can't because the second coming didn't come in the first century. All of these things, you have to spiritualize them to see them in the first century. And a lot of other detail that we'll look at in a moment here. So I would reject this generation or the preterist view that it didn't take place in the first century. And let me give you some of the data to deal with that. So there's a contrast between that little phrase, generation, Ganea, 70 AD, remember we did make the point, verses 23, verse 36, is a reference to 70 AD. And there's several things in that context that indicate that. And he's speaking to a generation that is unwilling. Remember he condemns them because they've rejected him. They're unwilling to respond and they're unwilling to believe him. It's an unwilling generation. Now I'm going to contrast that. They're also condemned for their unwillingness and their unbelief. Jesus says, your house is going to be left to you desolate. That's 70 AD. That happened about, what, 40 years later or just under 40 years. That generation that he's speaking of in chapter 23 is condemned. Thirdly, that generation is going to experience the judgment, the result of that condemnation. Make sense? We talked about all of this. This is a review. Fourthly, it talks about a great scattering of the nation of Israel. That happened at 70 AD. They're going to be scattered. Now, all of these are going to be contrasted with what we have in chapter 24 later. And the last thing here, this is in the past from our perspective. All of that was in the past. And you can historically look at these things and see that they happened in 70 AD. Uh, Are you referring to the scattering of the diaspora and the scattering of the Jews? Yes. Yeah, diaspora, yep. Which is the scattering of the Jews in all of the nations at 70 AD. Now... It continued into the next century, but essentially Jews were scattered. What was it? Uh, 135 was the final destruction of the nation of Israel and the final dispersion. Yes, that's what I'm referring. That is chapter 23. Now, in chapter 24, this verse, verse 34, this generation, same phrase, close to the same context, although the context has shifted, He's dealing with a future time. So he's referring to the generation, I think, well, I'm jumping ahead, the generation that sees these things begin to take place. This is to a willing generation. It's to a people that are responsive to the gospel message. And we saw hints of that in verses 4 through 28. And we looked at some of the parallel passages and referred to Israel's conversion. That is a willing generation, a a generation responsive to the word of God. 
That's the period of time when the hardness that Paul refers to is removed. And Israel's eyes begin to see things differently. It's when the new covenant begins to take its effects. So it's to a willing generation. This is during that tribulation period. It's not a conde- words of condemnation, but we have words of warning. In other words, beware false prophets. Beware that there's going to be wars and rumors of wars. In other words, but this is just the beginning. In other words, be prepared for it. So there's a warning throughout. In fact, the whole attitude is one of warning in chapter 24. And rather than judgment, what do we have? You can supply the next one there on the salvation, or you might say redemption. This is Israel's time of redemption. And you can figure out the other one, the counterpart to the scattering. This is the time when what? God gathers the nation of Israel. And when those passages in the Old Testament that refer to the regathering of Jewish people in the land of Israel, we're seeing some of that today. That will culminate in a spiritual regathering as well. So the contexts are very different. So we have a gathering. And then we had, even in verse 31, angels sent out and Israel gathered, not only Israel, I think others as well, from the four corners of the earth, all gathered for the second coming of Christ. You see the contrast? So we're talking about two different generations here. This generation is a future generation. Make sense? Whereas the generation he's describing in Matthew 23:36 is a past generation. Does that help you? See that? Keep everything in context. If everything, if you keep everything in context, everything kind of fits together. Now, Bible prophecy, granted, is not that easy, and we have these little things that make it difficult. But I think if you keep everything in order, you can see that it all fits together. So I reject the first century generation, and there are some Bible interpreters that take the first century as the beginning of the full unfolding of this, and the beginning is very similar to the the, the second view there. This is the historicist approach. And then they would see these things unfolding throughout church history. Now, I would reject that historicist view as well, as we've done throughout the passage. Fourthly, and somewhat related to that, this generation refers to the church age. Now, that spiritualizes it, because it's talking of, when you speak of a generation, you're generally talking about a specific time frame. It's not totally clear, but generally like 40 years. And this is the problem with the Hal Lindsey interpretation, because when he was writing the late great planet Earth, he was anticipating within about a 40-year span that you should expect the rapture. Now, he never sets dates, and he never did, but he said, you know, the leaves have budded, the nation of Israel, and we're getting close, we're beginning to see, the generation's about up. Well, the Lord didn't come in, what is it? Uh, 1988, or is that, is that right? For, yeah, 88. Even though there was somebody that wrote 88 reasons why the rapture is going to occur in 1988. <laughs> well, the rapture did not occur. Either that or we missed it, right? So it does not refer to the church age. Fifthly, the suggestion that 
Bill proposed, well, that he wasn't proposing it, but Bill was mentioning there are some interpreters that refer, speaking uh, in general, that, and the word can be translated in terms of race or people, in terms of the Jewish people. In other words, Jewishness or uh, the Jewish people will never be extinguished until these things take place. Well, again, that's a little bit spiritualizing of the, the word Ganea. I think if you just take it literally and take into account all these other things, the best interpretation is that it refers to a future generation, a last generation, if you will, before the second coming of Jesus Christ. That makes sense? So that's the, the doctrine, or that's the essence, written to the original audience so that they could not only understand from their perspective, but understand that he is speaking of a far distant future generation. And the generation of believers that read this during the tribulation, it will have immediate application to them as well. Now we can apply it in the 21st century, now that we understand it. So truly, truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. All that he has talked about from verse 4 to verse 28 is all going to fit within a very short time frame. In fact, Daniel says within a seven-year period of time. Now, you might have a time before preceding, in other words, the generation preceding that signing of the covenant, but once the covenant is signed, you have seven years. That's within that time frame. All of those things are going to take place. So I think he's referring to the generation that begins to see the unfolding of these events. Now, there may be some overlap, and we may be close to that time frame as well, but uh, we have no time frame. We no, have no certainty of that. We look at the imminent return. That's the rapture. They look at the literal return that has a lot of signs preceding it. Does that make sense? That's catalogically. So... This generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Uh, just to be clear, are you saying that there could be a generation uh, that is not only a part of the tribulation, but perhaps preceding, preceding it? Somewhat? Yes. That's the overlap? Yes, that's the overlap. Mm-hmm. So the correspondence that we have here, the fig tree is an illustration of this last generation. And I'm going to use this slide to kind of give you the correspondence of all of these illustrations. This is the first of it. So the essence of it, the signs of the second coming, not the rapture. The signs of the second coming should create a sense of urgency in those that live in that time frame. They're not to be shaken by these events. They're not to be thrown off guard. They're not to be caught unawares. They are to have a sense of urgency, a sense of anticipation, knowing that the second coming is short, and they are to maximize what they are to do in that time frame. And that leads to an application we can draw. We should have the same attitude, even though we will not be living in that seven-year period of time. Make sense? So we should have the same attitude in terms of the rapture, that aspect of the second coming. 
we should have a sense of urgency. And we should live as if the Lord is going to come back today. Making the most of this day. Not knowing, because he's going to make that clear in the next verse. So verse 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. In other words, these things are the beginning of the passing away of all things that we're familiar with. Everything's going to be destroyed. Everything's going to be different during that after that seven-year period of time. Heaven and earth will pass away. We're talking eschatology. We're talking about consummation of all things, including world history. But Jesus claims my words will not pass away. Now, in the next few verses here, including this one, we have kind of an interplay between deity and humanity. Deity and humanity. And I'll close with this. The deity, Jesus, in his earthly life, demonstrated omnipotence in his miracles. In other words, those miracles pointed to an omnipotent Jesus. He could still the sea. In other words, he could affect climatology. He could uh, reverse death. Only God can do that. These are displays of his omnipotent power. In this context, he displays revelational authority. In other words, he has the authority of God himself to reveal things that man cannot know. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but his words, the words of Jesus Christ, are inspired, inerrant, revelation, and they have the authority of God himself. But, notice verse 36, but of that day and the hour no one knows, not even the angels. Satan doesn't know, angels don't know, demons don't know. Angels of heaven. But here's an interesting passage. Nor the Son. Jesus himself, when he's speaking to the disciples, did not know the exact time frame. And he knew Daniel chapter 9. Nor the Son, but the Father alone. Interesting statement. Now you have to understand the nature of Jesus. He is what? Number one. Fully God, 100% God, and uh, what, 98% man? Fully man. Fully man, 100% man. That's the orthodox doctrine. So we have an interplay between deity and humanity. We have omnipotent miracles and revelation authority displaying deity, full deity. But we also have full humanity, and he had all of the hum- human limitations that you and I experience. He suffered. On a day like this, he, he sweat. He was hot. He was uncomfortable. He wept. He had the emotions that we have. He had all the limitations in his humanity. So also in this passage, he had limited knowledge. So you have both. You have omniscience at the same time as you have limited knowledge. That's the mystery of Jesus as fully God, fully man. So in this passage, we have an interesting combination of the two. So this is kind of the conclusion of this parable, the explanation in terms of what Jesus is getting at. And we can conclude by a couple of perspectives that we can apply in our culture. We can live with a second coming perspective And when we think of second coming in the church age, it includes a rapture or a removal 
of believers, but we can have the same attitude that uh, Jesus is encouraging the disciples in the first century and that particular generation that will begin to see the unfolding of these events. We can have the same attitude, same application, because we can anticipate the glory of the second coming and the glory, uh, in our case, of the rapture. Who wants to close for us? Mary Lee. You praise and thanks that you hold all things in your hand. And as we look with dismay, perhaps, at what is going on, we commit our feelings to you, knowing that you are bringing about all things, uh, that you are bringing about the end of your plan, that you are bringing about the completion, not the end of your plan, but the fulfillment of all that you have ever promised is is beginning to stir it. Father, I pray that we will face whatever happens with confidence in you. We will face whatever is coming with the absolute certainty that you are in control, that you are working all things for your glory and also for our good. So we give you praise, thanks, honor, and glory. We exalt your name because you indeed are holy and perfect. In your son's name we pray. Amen.